A dark saga in Toronto's history is almost at an end. Convicted serial killer Bruce MacArthur is expected to spend the rest of his life in prison for killing eight men, Basir, Faizi, Hamid, Kayan, Skanda, Navaratnam, Sarush Mahmoodi, Andrew Kinsman, Salim Essen, Dean Lisowick, and Karushna Kumar Kanagaratnam over a period of seven years. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. We look at the review into the police investigation into Bruce MacArthur, the officer who is facing disciplinary charges, and what police may learn from this grisly case. Before we get to our conversation, remember, if you want every episode delivered right to you, all you have to do is hop over to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and hit subscribe. If you like what we're doing with the show, please leave us a review. Joe Warmington is a columnist with the Toronto Sun. What do you think ultimately should happen in this case? Well, obviously, Bruce MacArthur is going to serve the rest of his life in prison. Uh, you don't kill eight people and all obviously celebrate it the way he did and get to come you know, free again. And so that I think everybody agrees upon. When they're talking sentencing, uh, whether it's, you know, 25 years, 50 years, or what I think it should have been is uh, 200 years, 25 consecutive for each, you know, each person that was murdered. It's it's kind of a talking point, but at the end of the day, this evil piece of garbage will be locked up and, you know, he comes out in a box and that's the way it should be. As we come to the end of this case... Uh, from the court perspective and we get into sentencing and we find out, you know, exactly what his sentence is that he's going to serve. People start talking about the fallout and there's been lots of discussion around how police handled the case. Um, and there's talking about the relationship between the police and Toronto's gay community. Uh, I understand that there, there's a review into the police handling of the case. What is this review going to look at? Well, even that they haven't sorted out yet. Um, but yeah, there will be a review of some kind because there's so many components to this, Dave. This is not any one thing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it goes all the way to the chief on down to junior constables and also how the media handled it and the community as a whole and also the gay community. So, you know, it, it's going to be pretty interesting to see how they sort it out. Personally, I don't think that there needs to be more than a couple of days or a couple of weeks to go through the notes and figure out what they did well, what they didn't do well, the lessons learned and move on. But that's not how it's going to roll here. There seems to be a lot of people who want to settle scores and go over old ground and, you know, old hurts and, uh, you know, the political part of it. And so, you know, I guess that's what's going to happen. So who's asking for the review to take place? Well, that's a good question, too. I mean, you know, bottom, the bottom line of the narrative is that the gay community uh, here in Toronto, which is a very large community, have had an ongoing battle with the police over things like the Pride Parade. But it goes way, way back to the 70s with the bathhouse raids and all the things that have ensued since then. And, of course, the serial killer in the middle of all this stuff is, is really important because here at the Toronto Sun Newsroom, we always talked about it being a serial killer. Uh, because mm -hmm. we you know that's what we do. And we were told that we were conspiracy theory people and that, you know, there was no evidence of this. And the chief, uh, Mark Saunders, a good man and all of that, 
Uh, but he came out in December um, of 17 and said that, you know, there was no evidence of a serial killer. This while they were doing surveillance on Bruce MacArthur and doing DNA and all of that. Now, either he was playing some sort of a game of possum, if you will, uh, or, um, you know, he, he didn't know or whatever it was. But the narrative didn't sit well. It wasn't true what he was telling us, A. And B, uh, you know, he went as far as to say that, you know, the gay community could have done more. And that didn't go over very well. You know, they could have done more to help the police and started sort of striking out blame to other people. As crass as it is, in a way at a point, and that, you know, they don't let the police into the parade and all these kinds of things. It takes two to have a big argument that doesn't get settled. But you still can't say something like that. I mean, at the end of the day, there's one community here. It doesn't matter what your color of skin is or your background, your religion or your sexual orientation. There's just Torontonians. And this is one of the darkest, uh, you know, most vile and evil chapters in our city's history. And, and I think we all agree on that. And we should just stay working together. To that point that the chief was making about how the gay community could have done more, I think it's been widely reported that they were trying to do more. They were going to police and saying these people have just up and vanished. There's no reason why that could have happened. You need to be looking into this. Does a review of how the police handled it potentially help deal with some of this fractured relationship between the LGBTQ community in Toronto and the Toronto Police Service? I'd say no, because... They did work on it. They had Project Prism, Project Houston, very good detectives working on it. There's no crime scene, so you had nothing to work with there. Missing people are really difficult because there's not a body to, you know, to work with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had a very, very uh, skilled serial killer in action. And he got the better of the police. So, you know, to suggest that the police didn't care about it and all of that, is a little bit of a stretch now. Uh, and that's why I don't think that they should go down and sort of, as I said, settle old scores, if you will. Now, um, the, the, the chief should be questioned about why he did say there was no, and it wasn't just the chief, the police in general said that. Was that something that they had chosen to do as part of their investigative strategy? Because they did not want to tip off a potential serial killer. They, mm -hmm. they should clarify things like that. Um, you know, and you know, I think that the idea that, you know, that the police shouldn't be in the parade and all of those things, they should just stop that. Let them be in the parade. There's lots of, uh, you know, gay officers and all that stuff. They're, they're the ones that are getting hurt in this thing. They want to be part of it. And, uh, you know, I think the public as well feels just stop it. Stop fighting and work together. When did Bruce MacArthur first come to police's radar and what interactions did they have with him before his arrest i mean he he was on the police's radar as far back as 2001 he had a conviction for an attack on somebody similar to what we've heard that he did later uh, and in 2003 so he was in the system if you will many people are in the system that are walking around uh, on bail or parole or, or you know uh, suspended sentences or absolute discharges all of that because you know how the justice system works in canada um, in this case, um, he came on the radar thanks to Andrew Kinsman, who was the eighth victim in this, uh, you know, horrible uh, case. And he had written Bruce on his calendar. And then hmm. from that, they were able to look for surveillance video of Andrew Kinsman getting into that van 
they utilized the, you know, the, they didn't have a license and they couldn't see who the driver was, but they narrowed it down through a check through the government records to see who bought this particular type of van. There was over 6,000 that did. And there was a Bruce in there, Bruce MacArthur. When they flagged it, uh, he was actually in custody in 32 Division here in Toronto in 2016, in June, uh, for a case of a guy saying he was being choked and strangled, um, which is, you know, another fallout of what we're talking about here and that whole mm -hmm. part of it, which I know you're going to ask me about. But, you know, that's when he really became the guy. And that's, and that's in you know, investigative uh, work that, uh, you know, it's a textbook uh, gumshoe kind of really slow and methodical policing. That kind of break that they got there, Dave, they didn't get earlier in Houston and in prison because there was just so many dating apps and there were so many people and there was nothing that seemed to be coming their way. They were doing the work, but they didn't get a break. At what point did they suspect that he was responsible for some or all of these cases? And did they prevent any other homicides from taking place? Well, they, they definitely did. And, um, you know, in this case here with uh, Bruce MacArthur, once they had the name Bruce and they were, you know, they were able to get a Bruce MacArthur with a criminal past who had been arrested for this kind of thing in 2016, then they go to a judge and they've got to get a warrant to, you know, to surveil him, to go into his property, his van, and all of that. Because they don't have anything more than that. They have a suspicion, but they have to do their investigative work now, and they have to do it lawfully. So mm -hmm. they did all that, and that was all in the early part of 2017, uh, and in late, uh, sorry, uh, 2018 and late 2017. And so, you know, they, they very quickly realized that this was their guy, and then they had to figure out, you know, how to go about building a case against them, you know, and they're not going to tell us everything they did, but I'm sure that they did some sort of uh, surveillance inside of his apartment, and perhaps even set up, you know, things that they could watch in there through the computer and other ways. Anyway, all everything you needed to know about Bruce MacArthur was in his computer and in his van, DNA and also electronic files. This guy taped and videotaped and photographed his victims. He kept trophies of them. He's, you know, obviously tortured them. He put cigars in their mouth, shaved them. I mean, it is silence of the lambs, you know, on steroids. It's the worst thing that I've ever heard. And we've had some bad cases here in Ontario. I know we've across the country have had them, many of them. But here in Toronto, obviously the Bernardo case and the Russell Williams case, these are Ontario cases. Mm -hmm. are horrific. This one, it, it, you know, hard to imagine, is worse, but you know what I mean? It, it's certainly larger. And um, so anyway, the, the life they saved was in the process of all of this. And we reported this right, you know, in real time at the time of the arrest. And that is that they were surveilling uh, him and somebody went in to the, um, into his apartment and uh, was tied, uh, handcuffed to the bed. And, you know, they were surveilling, they, you know, they couldn't wait anymore. And they went in and mm -hmm. arrested him. They arrested him in the act of potentially murdering another person. And, you know, if you think that that's a stretch, the guy's name was John. And he actually had a computer file with the name John ready to add to it. Uh, Bruce MacArthur was addicted to killing. He uh, was addicted to violence. And, you know, he 
uh, got pretty sloppy towards the end because he, when he went after Andrew Kinsman and this other guy, he was no longer as careful before he selected victims that, you know, could conceivably fall, you know, under the radar of people and, you know, they, they weren't from here. They had the big long names that people can't remember. Um, and he looked for that kind of thing as his victim. Interesting, uh, I just want to say that the Toronto Police, Dave Dickinson, the detective that really put a lot of this together, along with uh, Detective Sergeant Hank Nzinga, who's now an inspector, when this all happened, he came out and in the courthouse, the big scrum was there, and he read all eight names out. He didn't read them out, he memorized them. And, you know, they're they're really tough names to remember. I have to check every time because of spelling and, and just to remember because they're from places like Sri Lanka and... Um, you know, different parts of different languages, uh, other parts of the world. And this was utilized by this evil person to to his advantage. And the police eventually caught on to him. And we all have to remember that, you know, if if this did play a role, if the fact that people didn't care as much about this case, whether it's you, you and your day-to-day life or whether it's the police, to remember that this is the lesson to be learned from this. Every person matters. They're all, there's no one better than anyone else. There's no one inferior. There's not one type of Canadian. There's only one type of Canadian and that's a Canadian. And you know, it, it also shows, uh, echoes of a guy like Robert Picton, who was picking vulnerable victims, yes. uh, vulnerable people, uh, who may not have loved ones to report them and then disposing of them like they were not a value like in Picton's case it was it was on his farm uh and in in the case of uh Bruce MacArthur he was leaving them in planters you would think in, with today's technology uh the way things are today that maybe somebody could develop a program uh you know where you can sort of record where you've been or what you who you're with or these kinds of things I mean that this happens anyway digitally but you know maybe that's one thing that will come out of this is that you can't trust uh, everybody. You never know what is lurking below. And I think that that's the problem that police have is that they, you know, individually they run into that where they don't trust humanity anymore. But I think us in the media too, I mean, you know, who would have ever thought that this guy, Bruce MacArthur, a mall Santa and landscaper and, you know, different people that I talked to knew him. And yet it was all there to see. I mean, people that uh, we've spoken to right on Church Street have been, you know, with him intimately and described much the same thing and running away and that kind of thing. So this guy was sort of on people's radars for a long time. Um, and yet, you know, uh, it wasn't until eight victims that we know of, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more, uh, mm-hmm. but I hope not. But um, anyway, it, it really is uh, mind blowing this case. And the more you read about it, and I know they'll make movies about it and I know there'll be books about it. And I think there should be. But you realize that, you know, that this did happen under our nose right here in our city. And it, it really is horrifying. Now, you mentioned earlier that the police had him in custody back in 2016. And that's part of this review. And it's already seen one officer hit with disciplinary charges under the Police Act. What can you tell me about the officer? Yeah, his name is Detective Sergeant... Paul Goche, a 15-year veteran. I knew his father, Rick, who's retired police officer. 
And I don't know uh, Paul very well, but I can tell you he's a terrific cop. He's the guy that works on these human trafficking, breaking up these uh, gangs that try to get like, you know, 12 and 13, 14 year old girls involved in prostitution. And, you mm -hmm. know, he's got the, the most difficult job there is. He's worked in criminal investigations branch and he is a good police officer. Um, in this case here, the way it was originally presented was that he had kind of dropped the ball, if you will, in 2016 when a person came into 32 Division complaining that this guy named Bruce MacArthur had been choking slash strangling him as they were having what was supposed to be a date in a McDonald's parking lot. Now, um, as we peel it back and do more work on it, we've learned thanks to uh, Paul Gauthier himself writing a letter to his friends, that he actually did videotape uh, the interview. He did, mm -hmm. uh, you know, caution Bruce MacArthur. And he did have a, a colleague, a, a female officer who was accredited in domestic violence as part of the interview process. And he got his staff sergeant to sign off on it to, when they determined that there were no charges to be laid. The question is, you want a Monday morning quarterback and say that he should have laid a charge on Bruce MacArthur, in hindsight, of course he should have. Uh, we know now that he killed eight people, two of which happened after this incident. But, you know, the officer didn't have that information at the time. And, you know, it's very hard to go back and say, well, now that we have it, we're going to nail you for that. And that's exactly what's happening here. Um, I don't think it's personally fair. Uh, I think that, you know, obviously, if there's something procedural that he should have done differently, um, then they should deal with that. But I don't think that it's meant to be in the spirit of this man walking around, uh, you know, with the, some sort of blame on his shoulders for two further deaths when there's just no way that that's fair, realistic, uh, you know, or logical. Could there be other officers who face sanction in this? I hope that the chief and the people that are behind this will take to heart that, you know, this is an out-of-the-box anomaly, this case. And it can't be treated like any other case. This is not a minor procedural thing that they're going to slap a guy on the wrist for. This is setting up for his whole life as he's responsible for these deaths. When you and I both know that MacArthur, even if they had uh, moved forward with all of this, would have been out on bail or maybe even released on his own recognizance anyway. Uh, the only thing that could have made a difference, and this is why I think that Paul Goche should be cut a break on it, is the fact that he did not know about Project Prism when he ran his name. Why wasn't that in there, uh, you know, uh, that there was a Project Prism underway and that, you know, if, if you run into a person that's done something like this, make sure you hold them and contact the investigators. Those kinds of red flags are all over the police computers. Uh, that's part of policing major case management uh, today. They call the VICLASS uh, system where they plug in information that could help another case. He didn't have any of that to work with either. Um, so, you know, it goes both ways. And don't forget that Chief Saunders, who I have a great deal of respect for, and I don't want to, you know, the buck does stop with him, but, you know, he's done a pretty good job on this. But he did say that there was, you know, nothing there in terms of a serial killer. So you can't expect this officer to take the full heat on it, I don't think. So what do you think the police have learned in terms of dealing with either marginalized communities or major case management out of this? And how do you think they may handle something differently in the future? Well, that's a really good question. And 
that's a question that should be asked of Chief Saunders. But I think that the one thing that they've learned is that relationships matter. And, you know, you can escalate it. You and I can have a disagreement and we can keep it going forever. Or we can say, you went on that point. I went on this point. We shake and we move on, even in our own relationships. This whole thing about us and them. And you see it in the United States with the Trump thing. You see it here in Canada with the Trudeau thing. And it's, it's wrong. Uh, you know, you look at your leaders that are elected and you like some things, you don't like some things, and they're still your leaders. I think that it's an overall shift in attitude that needs to happen and be happy and look for the good in people and don't be pitted in this corner, that corner. Everything that somebody says is no good or I'm not going to clap for that person because they don't fit into my political stream. I don't know how you're going to fix this, Dave, but what I've just said to you now would have solved some of this because... You know, there would have been a lot of people talking, sharing notes, working together and uh, remembering that, you know, the big picture is bigger than the smaller picture. And I think at the end of the day, in this case, people will be happy to see Bruce MacArthur uh, rotting in a jail cell. Uh, Joe, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Technical support this episode from Craig Robertson. Thanks to my guest, Joe Warmington. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>